Hello everybody, my name is Oscar Ramos, Partner and Managing Director at SOSB. As we're giving up for our next demo day on November 24th, let's revisit some of our most memorable conversations about the venture capital landscape in Asia with renowned investors from Singapore, India, and China. Enjoy, and don't forget to sign up for next demo day to meet the 10 startups chosen for our latest cohort. Check out all the links in the show notes. We'll be back with a brand new season next month. Until then. We tend not to be focused on one particular sector or another particular sector or trend invest, etc. Again, back to what I said earlier, we're really first principles, right? When you tell us we have a business to build, we go, how are you going to build it? Who are you going to sell to? All the basic questions, right? But that said, the most interesting trend, I think we talked about this earlier, one, one of the most interesting trends to us is what we've been labeling the technification of the service sectors. But if you take that view of life and you apply to Southeast Asia, we're about 10, maybe 15 years at worst case behind China, right? Our GDP is around what China was when all this technification started happening about 10, 15 years ago, right? We can see it happening here, right? Look at transportation, Gojek, Grab. You look at retail, right? You've got Shopee, Tokopedia, Travelta, and, and Bukalapa. Right? You travel, you've got Tokopedia, right? So a lot of the services sectors are starting to be taken over by tech companies. This is your host, Oscar Ramos, and you're listening to the Asia Startup Pulse podcast, your looking glass into the Asian investment and startup ecosystem, hosted by the Global Venture Capital Fund, SOSB, and its cross-border accelerators, Chan Accelerator, and Mox. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Asia Startup Pulse. Today, with uh, guest Peng Tiong, co-founder and managing partner of Monks Hill Ventures. Peng, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Peng, you've been an investor for a long time. You started uh, your career investing in China, but you are now investing in, uh, in Southeast Asia. What can you tell us about your, your journey as an investor and, and why you decided to originally start uh, Monks Hill Ventures? Yeah, so my investing sort of experience uh, started way before China, before I went to China. I spent most of my career in the Valley as an entrepreneur, so Silicon Valley as an entrepreneur. So lots of uh, opportunities, obviously, there to do seed investing, but not professionally. And then when I was in Singapore, I did help our government in Singapore run a particular fund, tech-focused fund. After that, I went to China and I joined a, a firm called GSR Ventures. They're one of the top uh, Series A venture funds in China. And I spent four years there really understanding China. But as my partner at Kauai and I talked uh, over the years when I was in China and towards uh, 2012, we started realizing that the ecosystem in Southeast Asia was getting big enough. The GDP per capita was high enough that it was enough discretionary spending going on that we thought at that point, 2012 or so, that tech would start taking off, right? Uh, we're probably a bit early, but not so early, you know, and uh, we decided to start a Series A fund. We saw a lot of seed deals at that point, so we thought a Series A fund would be timely, so we did that. What would you say is the, is the main difference of the Series A and the seed round? 
the seed round is I've got an idea. I think if I did A, B, C, D, E, I can start building a repeatable, scalable business, a big business, right? And the seed investor go, yeah, I believe you. Here's the money. Go try it, right? That's a seed investor. A Series A investor is coming in after a year, maybe nine months to you know, 24 months after you spend some money trying out the idea. And you're telling the, C- the Series A investors, I think we have a business here. We ran this thing and we've got this amount of traction with our product. And we think with your Series A investment, we can crank it up. And that's the ideal situation. Sometimes when you start cranking up, you realize there's some problems with the sales engine and all kinds of issues. So that's the difference between C and A is whether the sales engine is up and running or at least kind of you have some idea how the sales engine is going to run as opposed to it's a design and a theory. I mean, you're investing across Southeast Asia and sometimes, and you've, you've been also active investor in China. And when we say Series A, and we try to make it more, more specific and we say, okay, how much is actually a Series A? Uh, the, the range goes really, really, really wide. Yeah. So uh, can you talk a bit about your perception of Series so, A? So the seed and Series A I described to you is what we think about in terms of risk categories, right? Series A and seed is also a label they put on the share purchase agreement, right? To that extent, it's just a name. So you've seen series uh, seed deals that look like series A in terms of valuation. In fact, seed deals that look like series B or C in terms of valuation and new money raised. You know, people raise, I've seen people raise like 50 million in the first round, right? A seed deal has 50 million new money, right? But that's very rare. That's probably a serial entrepreneur. He's already built a billion dollar company. He's doing something else. You know, that's unusual. Yeah, maybe um, they sit around, they do it themselves by pulling, right. pulling, up, pulling a few millions. Yeah. <laughs> so the label is just the first label that went on the share purchase agreement, right? So it's this Series A, but they might have already spent, you know, three, four million getting there. So when we say Series A or Series B or C for that matter, we don't really refer to that label on the shareholder agreement. We're thinking in terms of the stage of the company, where, where how much do we understand about your business today, right? That's what we mean by Series A. So Series A would be, you kind of sort of got a sales engine going. I think we look at it and you how much does it cost to get one qualified customer? Okay, here's the numbers, you know, approximately, you know, $100, whatever, right? So you get some ideas how to run your, your business by the time you're at Series A. You haven't scaled it up, you know, maybe at half million, one million, two million in revenues. You haven't really scaled it up to like 10, 20, 30 million. You found something that someone wants. You seem to be able to deliver on that uh, on that promise, but still you're working on this uh, repeatable and scalable growth engine yes, for the yeah. company. You, you might even have some level of visibility into the repeatability, but you haven't scaled it out. So you think you can repeat it and scale it out, you know, and uh, that's where the risk in, this is the VC part of the investment, right? There's still risk involved. But if we give it a number, if we give it a number, what, I mean, you can think about it in different ways, no? but it gives you an idea of how much can you get when you are raising money or how much do you need to take the company to the next level in different markets? No? And, and Southeast yeah. Asia and, and Asia in general, there's a huge variety. No? I mean, you have like a eight digit Series A in some markets and you have like Series A that could be like low seven digits. Yeah. As in most business, there's no simple answer to this. The second question you ask, uh, how much money do you need, right? It's actually a very, what we like to call first principles 
kind of question. It's not a theoretical question in a you know vacuum. How much money you need depends on what you're trying to do with the business. You know, what are your plans? How's your ramp up rate? You know, how much visibility do you have to your pipeline? You're doing a business plan, and in your business plan, you do the math and you go, okay, I need you know three million, and I better raise another million and a half to have a buffer. So it's four and a half million. I'm going to raise four and a half million. So that's how fundamentally we like to see entrepreneurs attack that question, as opposed to, oh, I can raise ten million because I'm good at fundraising. So let me raise ten million. That's you know not, I think, the right way to approach that problem. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, that definitely is a good way. I mean, what I'm trying to find here is the difference that you can find in the region you know, and how this gives you a bit of a pulse of the maturity of the venture capital ecosystem. But I think also somehow, I mean, we talk about Southeast Asia as a region, but it's so, I mean, there's a lot of differences when you look yes. at the different parts that are different countries that are part of Southeast Asia. Yes, really, there is a whole range of, you know, I, I can probably name you three, four companies that recently got funded Series A at the mid, you know, $50 million, mid seven digits kind of range, right? So around $50 million plus or minus, that kind of range for a Series A deal, right, in Southeast Asia. Whereas most of it in the, the Series A in the past have been either six digits or teens, uh, seven digits, right, between 10, 20 million. And then they started more recently going above 10, above 20 to 25, 30, that kind of range. That is normal for Southeast Asia. In fact, I would say that 25, 30 is on the high side already for a Series A, right? But I've seen, you know, half, 50 million. That, that's not uncommon now. Do you think this is more driven by the growth of investment? Because there are more investors than the kind of like supply, demand law comes there and then allows entrepreneurs to secure more resources? Or is yes. because the region is becoming more competitive and then you actually need more? Yeah, uh, I think it's not about how much capital the company needs. It's number one, obviously, how well they're executing. But the price revenue ratios have actually gone up, right? I think it's the sort of the global recognition of the fact that Southeast Asia is becoming as interesting a venture market as Europe or US. We're starting to have, or, or China for that matter, uh, we're starting to have multiples that are closer to the US, China, Europe kind of range, right? And I think that's good for the region. It's basically, I think, in some ways, a recognition that the risk is a bit lower now, so you can pay, you, you don't have to squeeze as much of the multiples out of the company. Peng, what are the areas right now that you're the most interested? Where are the type of industries that are more bullish in Southeast Asia? Okay. We tend not to be focused on one particular sector or another particular sector or trend invest, etc. Again, back to what I said earlier, we're really first principles, right? When you tell us we have a business to build, we go, how are you going to build it? Who are you going to sell to? All the basic questions, right? And But that said, the most interesting trend, I think we talked about this earlier, one, one of the most interesting trends to us is what we've been labeling the technification of the service sectors. So in China, 15 years ago, you can see a lot of the services. China today has about 12, 13 billion in GDP, about half of that in services. And if you look at the services business in China, a lot of the profit margins in services go to tech companies that weren't around 15 years ago. They're new companies, 
right? So these companies have been taking China from really pen and paper, human beings running around kind of services business to fully AI empowered, you know, software enabled services businesses, right? For example, uh, trucking, you know, 70, 80% of trucking goes through one, one company in China, right? Full Truck Alliance. E-commerce, you know, about four companies, three, four companies has the bulk of, of retail going on, right? So you can see services, and you can go down all the services sectors of financial services, employment, HR, you know, home purchasing, you know, the whole gamut of uh, services that encompasses, you know, half the GDP of the country. It's all technified in China, right? In fact, the challenge now for tech entrepreneurs in China is all these areas are now red oceans. They are no longer blue oceans. So what are you going to do next, right? That's one of the challenges in China. But if you take that view of life and you apply to Southeast Asia, we're about 10, maybe 15 years at worst case behind China, right? Our GDP is around what China was when all this technification started happening about 10, 15 years ago, right? And we can see it happening here, right? Look at transportation, Gojek, Grab. You look at uh, uh, shop, uh, retail, right? You got Shopee, Tokopedia, Travel, and, and Bukalapa. You travel, you got Tokopedia, right? So a lot of the services sectors are beginning, starting to be taken over by tech companies. And I think this is one of the most interesting trends in the world, actually, for tech investing. Because we're not talking about small chunks of the economy. This is half of the GDP of Southeast Asia is in services. It's 1.5 trillion right now. I think in 10 years, it would be 3 trillion, right? And in 10 years, that 3 trillion, most of that profit pool from that 3 trillion will belong to a lot of tech companies, right? So that's why it's exciting. Actually, you know, when you're talking about that, it is true. And I, I try to explain sometimes when people comes to, they come to China to try to understand a bit more about the, about the technology ecosystem. And they look at the companies like, well, I mean, that technology is not rocket science. It's like, well, no, it's, it's, it's not, not, it's not about the technology. Yeah. It's not about the technology behind. It's about the concept. It's about yeah. how they actually have the technology in the core DNA of what they do. And if you combine that with a growing consumer population that is becoming more uh, demanding, more sophisticated, and a, a lack of infrastructure, even sometimes Trust. very low technology companies, yeah. very low technology companies where they can actually have massive growth. Now, I remember when I, when, I, yeah. when I came here to China almost 15 years ago, I was very surprised about seeing like just hotel chains and, and restaurant chains without particularly using a lot of technology, but probably more than others, they were going public on the Nasdaq. And yeah. I was like, wow, why? Well, because if you look at the company as a black box and you look at the numbers, they're growing super fast. And on top of that, you add the layer of technology and most of these companies, they are technology companies at their core, but from the outside, they're service companies. Yes, uh, they're, they're truck, trucking businesses or they're you know, uh, headhunting businesses and so on. Yeah, and the point here is that there's no way they can grow that fast and service that many users in a short amount of time without technology, right? Their efficiency, their productivity is just going to be human-based systems if they didn't have tech, right? So it's a combination of using tech and really super optimizing services business that were not even using computers. So it's like going from the branch age into the, uh, into the computer age in one step. If you understand how emerging market services business work, you realize that's very, very inefficient, right? So we're not just 
trying to computerize this. This is why we don't use the term digitization or computerization. It's just re-looking at the business and asking yourself, how do I use technology to make this even more efficient than first world systems, right? So arguably, I think China has one of the most productive tech, most sophisticated services sectors in the world now because almost all of it is new, right? It's been built the last 10 years. And this is what's happening here in Southeast Asia. We're building out a lot of these capabilities. And the businesses are actually uh, what we've been calling digital first challenges, right? They're challenging the uh, existing brick and mortar businesses with digital technology. Yeah, at least for China, where you had a very fragmented industry, in some cases, you create a layer of um, not just optimization, but a, but a layer of uh, standardization. You, you have where, to, where... Yeah, you, you have to reimagine how the business is going to work. You can't just do the same thing with computers, right? So let me give you an example. We have a company called Glintz, right? It's a recruiting company. It has headhunters. And the headhunters do what headhunters do. They, they talk to the candidates, they talk to the managers, and they try to find that match. The challenge is, if I have a database of a million engineers, and my client says, give me two engineers in, in Tangarang, which is near Jakarta, and I, I want them with this qualification, et cetera, how do I find it, right? How do I find those, uh, those five engineers to show the client? Very difficult. So this is where AI comes in. This is where technology comes in. You can go have the system go search and give you the, the, the matches, right? And the matches will be very good, much better than what a human being can do. This is not a human scale problem, right? So as a result, Glintz's uh, headhunters are you know, approximately 2x the productivity of the average headhunter in Indonesia. So that's one example where you're, you're doing very traditional services business, but you're using technology to really drastically improve the efficiency. We hope you're enjoying the episode. And if you're an entrepreneur building a cross-border business, feel free to contact us at chanaccelerator.com or mobileonlyx.com. When you look at businesses like this, you have a combination of not necessarily rocket science and you have the competition is not, uh, you're not competing against an existing techno a technology company. You're competing with a traditional company that has brand, credibility, and expertise. So what is the core DNA of a successful funding team for that type of space? Are we looking for like the tech guys? Or are we looking for the industry Both. experts? Obviously, you need always a combination, but, yes. but who plays a CEO role? Who is the one that drives really the, the strategy and the vision for the company? So my ideal answer to that is that the CEO has both expertise. But if I had to choose, the CEO should be very humble about the domain and work with his partners to figure out the domain, but he, he or she will have the, the technical expertise to understand what technology can do, the process expertise to understand how to apply that technology to really super, super optimize the, the system, right? So this is, this is not just technology innovation, this is business model innovation. You know, are there ways to generate leads that don't require you to pay lots of money for CAC, right? For customer acquisition and so on. That, that's a lot of things that just require deep thinking about where the value creation is and how do you super optimize the value creation. In this area, um, you mentioned, Roy, you know, that, that, I mean, China did create that industry of technology-enabled 
services that basically are regular companies with a core DNA that is different. And they are probably on, on like, as you said, I mean, for me, I, mean, I live in China, but, but travel abroad to different places. I have a like a, an experience of the service here in other places, and I can see the value, I can see the efficiency, I can see how this becomes very, very competitive. And when these companies are like, thinking of, okay, should we expand internationally? You already have the experience, particularly in Southeast Asia, where in the e-commerce domain, where China also became really, really active in that area, and they developed some very unique e-commerce models. And those e-commerce models expanded to, to other parts of the, of the world. They did have this expansion, and then they played a very important role shaping and contributing the evolution of the e-commerce market in Southeast Asia. What is your view on the service industry? My view on the service industry in Southeast Asia or in China? In terms of what, what is China's role going to play in the service, in the technification of the service industry in, in Southeast, Southeast Asia. Asia? Oh, I see. I think the first and probably the most important thing, they were the forerunners. They started doing that in their economy 15 years ago. Right? Lots and lots of lessons to be learned there. Right? A lot of models you see. It used to be a copy to China. So you copy US models to China. And then pretty soon, China started evolving its own models. Now it's copied to Southeast Asia, right? Some of the models, and obviously, I, I'm just being a little bit facetious. You don't just copy everything without using your brains, right? Some things don't translate culturally. Some things don't translate through legal systems, etc. You need to copy and modify and paste, right? So you've seen that happen. If you ask uh, the guys who, I won't name names, but if you guys, the guys who started GoFood in Jakarta, where did that idea come from? Well, I tell you because when they visited China, they talked to the folks at Erlema, right? Erlema was one of our GSR's in investors. Erlema literally means, are you hungry, right? They looked at that model and go, yeah, we, we've got the drivers here, so can we do that? So within a year, GoFood's up and running and growing like crazy, right? So this copy to Southeast Asia thing, but you've got to be sensitive on how you adapt it for the local taste, culture, etc. So that's the number one, I think, most important thing. I think China also has interest in having um, visibility, influence, uh, not China, but Chinese companies, visibility, influence, um, maybe some level of control in Southeast Asia. So they've been active. You'll see Tencent with funds here. You see Ali investing here and so on and so forth. So you see some of that, and that helps the maturity of the ecosystem also having funds come in. I think the good news for Southeast Asia, though, it, for Southeast Asian entrepreneurs is China is a big place, and all the Chinese executives are busy fighting the battles in China. So they're not coming down to Southeast Asia as vigorously as they could, right, if they've settled the China challenges. So it leaves Southeast Asian entrepreneurs to Southeast Asia to go build up their businesses. And you see most of our large companies are not, uh, you know, they're not Chinese branded companies. They are local companies. They're local companies, but as you mentioned, like the Chinese, Chinese corporate venture capital investors, particularly those associated to the large internet companies, yes. are among the most active investors in, um, actually, the most active investors in China and in the corporate venture capital space, they're among the most active investors in the world. And, and they're relatively different than most of the typical corporate VCs because yeah. they did have a very important role shaping and they're sometimes relatively early in the process of, uh, of investing, um, investing in companies. So yes. how is the role that they are having from that investment side? Are they, are um, they coming um, as a very strategic investor? Are they changing their yes. model? They're coming in as a strategic investor to build alliances, to build relationships, to build uh, 
data sourcing for them so they understand what the markets are here. But they do come in typically, uh, they're, they're not doing you know, $10 million deals, right? They're, they're doing like $100 million deals. So they're working with companies that ha- have gotten certain scale already in Southeast Asia. So that's the difference. You, know, you don't see Ali or Tencent or any of the Chinese big companies doing you know, uh, series A or C level kind of investing out here. Let me rephrase the question in a different way. So one of the concerns sometimes that um, that exists when uh, when entrepreneurs raise from a corporate VC, I'll say that in China with some of these strategies, it's, it's relatively different because you know there, there's going to be a change and you know there's already a, a commitment. But that doesn't necessarily mean that eventually what's going to happen is that uh, you're going to get acquired or you're going you're gonna to be somehow control and your operations are going to change because you'll have to to basically integrate in the corporate VC. Yeah. What is the perception from uh, from Southeast Asian entrepreneurs when they potentially get investment from one of these companies? Do they see that as a next step for acquisition or they know there might be potential, potential um, different paths? If you're a good CEO, you realize that one of your responsibilities is to make sure the optionalities are there for the company. Right? You can go public if you are at a certain level of revenues and profits. And then if you have strategic alliances, you can have exits through you know, some of the big Chinese companies or other, other globals. Right? So you want to lay out all these options and actually bring them closer to you. Right? And the way you do that from a strategic angle is by getting strategic investments. Pretty straightforward. They are, they are invested in you. They send a board member. They know how you're doing. They appreciate your business. And at some point, if it makes sense, you can talk to them about an M&A. You know, but the way you do it is not to leave them as the only choice for you. You need optionality. You need to say, well, if we don't do this, I can go public or this other company is interested. But, you know, you want to make sure you have optionality. I think that is the trick to most uh, CEOs' uh, strategic decisions along these lines. The way I've seen it, most of them have figured this out. You know, the Chinese investors typically don't come in and you know, buy out 50% of the company and start controlling it. Right? That's not how it works. You know, they, they are like any other investor. They take a chunk of the company and they have a board member and they work with the company as they grow. Right? And, and there are quite a number of Chinese companies doing that now. It's very friendly. I, I think the thing you got to realize is one of Southeast Asia's advantage that the Chinese companies uh, don't have is our companies are multinationals very early, right? We've got people in different parts of Southeast Asia, different languages, different cultures, and we figure out how to all work together in the company. The Chinese companies, if they want to go out, they've got to take advantage of that and not you know, just bring the Chinese operating culture into Southeast Asia, which might or might not work in some places. Right? And they're smart enough to know that. So it's not about taking over and controlling everything. It's about working together. Yeah, and with the amount of islands that you have in Southeast Asia, you need to start working on remote, remote, uh, yeah, remote yeah. practices really Strategy. fast. Otherwise, yeah. I mean, here you get a you get a fast speed train and you can cross the country in like a right. few hours. But uh, yeah. but um, in Southeast way. Asia, yeah, yeah, you if you wanna you wanna take like hundred kilometers, uh, most likely you need to get a plane or plane a boat, or a boat, or boat to get there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that that adds yeah. to that. Yeah, Philippines and Indonesia are two fascinatingly different countries from a logistics and, and internet spread point of view, right? Just very different. 15,000 islands each, right? I mean, you know, how, how do you figure out how to wire up all that? Right? And, yeah, and then definitely. Things that, 
Yeah, yeah I was going to say all the all the infrastructure that is that is critical to make this happen. No, because at the end of the day, I mean, we said that the technification of business is not rocket science, but there's actually technology that has been uh, that has been developed, and some of this technology is actually relatively localized for that uh, yes. specific uh, use case. No, we've seen, for yeah. example, how, for example, here in the the industry, simply of the of the um, all the workforces that are powering some of the on-demand uh, services, they have eventually developed a lot of uh, of uh, auxiliary technology. Some yeah. of them even become startups themselves that became that became unicorns to be able to provide a specific support for payments or support for the for the robotization or even like specific uh, devices that might that might make that happen do you see that infrastructure layer that needs to power some of these uh, new services that are going to be uh, technified in Southeast Asia coming from outside or being developed also locally because the reality is too different to be able to bring in something that works somewhere else yeah I, I see a lot of it being developed internally the credit systems you know people are starting to think how do we figure out credit in Southeast Asia forget Southeast Asia how, how do you do that in Indonesia how do you do that in Philippines so you're seeing a lot of these systems being built out as we speak right and uh, I think a lot of it's going to be just built locally mm-hmm. but are you seeing also I mean one, one of the key things that is also I mean that that initial the initial push of uh, of okay yeah we need we have a specific difficult problems to to solve it's not just opportunistic problems like really a big big challenge that needs to be solved and we need to solve this here we saw that as a push to work on more not just b2b and enterprise startups but actually to work more on on core technology startups and then the whole geopolitical situation that kind of like forced China to find their own alternatives to some of the international technologies yeah. that they couldn't have access, it kind of have, has given a push to the yes. whole uh, hard yeah. tech and deep tech ecosystem. Is yeah. this also coming to Southeast Asia? You see that also happening? No, no, I think over the next few years, you know, you're going to see China becoming more and more independent technologically, and you're going to see two branches of technology being built out, one rest of the world and one China. And the nice thing about being Southeast Asia, I think we'll be exposed to both and we have both available at some level. Not the super, super high-tech, you know, spy stuff, but the general development of technology and AI and all that stuff will be available in Southeast Asia. So we don't need to go build our own chipsets and, and design our own foundries and so on. I, I don't think that'll happen in Southeast Asia. Well, I mean, if you can benefit from getting the the best from uh, the best from everywhere, and you're actually in a good position to shape that that supply demand uh, yeah. curve to your own purpose, because obviously, once uh, once there's a technology that is available and ready to be competitive for the domestic market in China, I mean, obviously they're going to be going and look for alternative uh, markets. Yes, and um, and as the as the um, international players that no longer they're kind of get cut from the from the China market, they will be also trying to make sure that they don't lose even more. Yeah. So that's going to be an interesting situation there. Yeah. So I'd rather focus our attention as a venture fund on sort of what economic improvements, efficiencies we can build out in Southeast Asia, as opposed to building core technologies. About maybe 20, 30% of our funds is like SaaS and core tech businesses. The rest of it, we're trying to really focus on these services that's sort of technification kind of play where you can create multi-billion dollar companies because they are very good at some particular services, services uh, value proposition. Cool. Anything that you think would be great to talk about? I can give you a few more examples of companies we're looking at or investing in. You know, we see you know, travel uh, packaging 
uh, experience packaging company, meaning you, you buy a SKU that gives you a very unique experience. You know, that's an interesting uh, next generation of travel company. I think it'll get interesting the next few years. People have been cooped up so long. We want to travel. And I think, you know, you know, you're talking with a real VC when they're talking about travel. Well, we are still, uh, we're still uh, <laughs> doubting about mobility. So that is really, that is really forward looking. Yeah. Well, not, not that much. You, you, you see that the internal travel has already picked up quite a lot, right? So you can see the writing on the wall. Travel is one thing. Education, that's one of my favorite topics. We have a company, you, you probably know this. If you know English in Southeast Asia, your salary just got bumped up, right? So we have a company that actually is not teaching you how to read, write English. It's teaching you how to speak proper uh, standard uh, American English, right? It has an AI that coaches you. So the shortage of American, Native American speakers is now not a problem. Right. You can actually learn standard American English using an app. So things like that is happening across education, is happening across you know, uh, insurance. Insurance is another interesting area. The consumption of insurance is going to go up over the next few years in Southeast Asia. And the tech behind it is just very primitive right now. So lots and lots of opportunities. I know the audience for you is, is a lot of entrepreneurs. So I just want to reinforce, I think what's kind of obvious now, there's a lot of opportunities to build really, really big companies in Southeast Asia at this point. This, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. After that, you might have to move to Africa to, to have that same opportunity when Africa goes through that planification process. Right. So come help us build. I think this is a really, really good time <laughs> to do this. Well, thank you very much, Pam, for joining us today for the podcast, for sharing a bit more insights about this, uh, this trend, where it comes from, where it's, uh, where it's going to. And I love the last message of uh, welcome people with open arms to transform the region and to create new opportunities here. Yeah. That, that's what tech is for, right? To make a difference in life. Well, thank you very much for, uh, for sharing, Pam. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Like, share, and subscribe to the Asia Startup Pulse podcast and sign up to our newsletter to never miss another episode.